Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Tell you some money, man. I got two tickets, but I'm taking everybody, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hang out and turn it up. episode 342 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 342, we're joined by San Francisco legend uh, Greg Kinn, a guitarist uh, I think many of us probably remember from the video Jeopardy on MTV. Also the breakup song, which is a staple on uh, rock radio still to this day. He's got a great new album called Rekindled Out. He's got a song called Big Pink Flamingo. And he's going to be in Pittsburgh doing a show. I uh, haven't seen him in Pittsburgh in a long time. So doing a show at Jurgles in Warndale on the 17th of June. So let's play a little bit of Pink Flamingo and let's get into that interview with Greg King.
right, ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to the show. We have the incomparable Greg Kinn. How are you doing, Craig? Oh, doing good. I don't know if I'm incomparable, but uh, that's a good intro. Yeah, I uh, I have to say it's yours uh, is a career that I, I was thinking back. Um, you know, I came of age in the early '80s. You know, when I started to listen to music, and I remember the song Jeopardy being everywhere. So it is quite a pleasure oh, to talk yeah. to you. Um, you were kind of one of the pioneers of of video music in a way. Um, so it's it's really yeah. cool to have a chance to get a chance to talk to you. Um, but let's talk a little bit. You're originally from Baltimore, correct? Yeah, I, I was born and raised in Baltimore, and you know, back in those days, nothing bad ever happened. It was uh, it was an idyllic. It was kind of like living in a, in a Happy Days uh, mm. set. You know what I mean? It, it was just a, it was a good time. Nothing bad ever happened to us. And uh, you know, I remember that one night and Sunday night in so I guess it was '64 watching the Ed Sullivan show, the whole, you know, back in those days, the whole family would gather around the TV set. TV set. Of course, they only had three channels back mm-hmm. in those days. But uh, I remember we all sat down and watched Ed Sullivan, and we saw the Beatles. And it, would, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, man, right between the eyes. And I said, I point to the screen, and I said, that's what I want to do, you guys. That's what I want to do. Of course, they scoffed at me, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, years later, it, it kind of came true. So I, I, I've always been inspired by that first Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Now, what what moved you out to the Bay Area in particular? Because you know, I don't think a lot of people think of of specifically the Bay Area as kind of a hotbed of music, other than yeah. obviously Journey and, and Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. But you know, for the kind of music you were playing, what what drew you that direction? Well, when I first came out from uh, Baltimore, I I landed in L.A. and I probably went there for about six months, uh, and then I moved up to Berkeley. The reason I moved up here was that I had friends up here, uh, basically friends that were in rock stars, like the guys in Earthquake and the the, the guys in the Modern Lovers, and uh, everybody was driving was moving up to Northern California and I didn't want to be left behind. Plus there was a lot of, um, nightclubs. I mean, there was a lot of clubs to play back in those days. I remember there was the Keystone. There was the, uh, uh, there was, uh, the, the Long Branch Saloon. There was Berkeley Square. There was, you know, three or four different places and, you know, when I first started the band, I remember when I first came out here, I was so poor, I was busking. You know what busking is? I have to say I don't. Yeah, it's when you play on the street. Okay. You just go out there with your guitar, you poop, you know, put your guitar case out there, and you just play for spare change. And I was playing right on Telegraph Avenue, you know, Main Street, Hippiedom, USA, and yeah, we, I, we used to make like 40, 50 bucks a day, me and my buddy, uh, Robbie Dunbar. And, uh, one day when we were playing on the street, we used to get large crowds, you know, people hanging out and watching or you know, maybe killing a lunch break or something. And they'd watch us and we had a lot of fans. So he said, man, it's just a, it's a shame you guys don't have a band 
because I need a band to be a house band at the uh, Long Branch Saloon because Eddie Money, who was the house band, had just signed a a contract with Bill Graham and he was moving up and out. And they need another. They needed another band, so I I lied to the guy. His name was Malcolm. I said, "Oh, Malcolm, I got a band. Yeah, we're really good, man." <laughs> and I lied like a rug, and I told him we had a band and they were good. And they, so as soon as Malcolm left, uh, Steve, who was with me, says, uh, we better go put together a band, and we got one week. So we did. We got his brother-in-law, Larry Lynch, on drum. because hey, my brother-in-law is a pretty decent drummer. Why don't you try him? We did that, and it worked. And then he said, I knew a guy in uh, high school that was a really good guitar player. Why don't we try him? So he called Dave Carpenter up, a guy he'd gone to high school with, and before you know it, in less than a week, I put together a band, and that band lasted for over 20 years and made 18 albums. Yeah, and maybe that, that haste actually probably made it easier, you know, so you're not scrutinizing things to death, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? i got to tell you, there's a, there's a funny story, because the first guy that I contacted... Uh, to be the guitar player in the Greg Kim band was Joe Satriani. And Joe, at the time, was in a group called The Squares. They were a Berkeley band also. And I asked him, he said, no, I'm loyal to The Squares, and they're my guys. And I asked him again two or three years after that, he said, no, still loyal to The Squares. Finally, back in, geez, it must have been mid-'80s when I said... Uh, uh, would you consider the joining the band now? He goes, yep. The squares broke up. Now I'm ready. So he he joined my band, and that was obviously right before his uh, successful solo career. And I remember telling him, I said, you know, Joe, look, you're too way way too good <laughs> for this band. You know, I'm a three chord guy. You're a three thousand chord guy. Yeah, I, re- I remember reading his memoirs and him talking quite a bit about his time with you and it caught me by surprise because I thought I knew everything Joe related I was like I had no idea um, and then I would try to imagine stylistically what that sounded like um, did, did he play well with others at that point I mean you know in a band situation like that you know he could he was a good enough guitar player he could adapt almost his style to any to any situation and yes, he did put his imprint on all of the songs in that cure. You know, you have to realize a song like uh, Breakup Song, mm-hmm. uh, where I had been, you know, doing it for years and years. It, I played it with uh, when Dave Carpenter was in the band, when mm-hmm. uh, when uh, with Jimmy Lyons was in the band, and then later when Greg Douglas was in the band. So. Joe came along and he was like the fourth guy to play the break song and I could see the difference between the way he played it and the way the other guys played it. Mm-hmm. Joe was a technician and he was uh, unbelievable. I mean, he could really... Well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of, a, of a, an illustration. Like, well, we would go to a gig and we would, you know, show up at the gig like three or four in the afternoon and we'd do a quick sound check Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a half half an hour sound check, and then we go. To, everybody would go to the hotel, grab a little dinner, and then go back to the venue like around nine o'clock. Joe stayed. He we did. He started doing his thing, and then he stayed. He ate the croon meal, 
he uh, he just he worked his guitar and he you know he he sound checked it and he got perfection and he would do it he would work his guitar for two hours you know and he was he was practicing the songs and everything he was way too serious for us <laughs> yeah I mean that that's that's a fascinating because it, it's it's like I said it came as a total shock to me and it's interesting to hear you reflect on that particular time. Now, you obviously, as as I mentioned, had tremendous success in the area of MTV, and a lot of bands, you know, I think that that kind of made that transition from the 70s and into the 80s, either weren't pretty enough or just didn't get music videos, but what what was it about the Greg Kinn band, or who kind of sold you guys on, hey, make a video, make it entertaining, uh, and you'll be megastars? What, what... Well, when... Yeah, I remember uh, those early days. In fact, the the inaugural year of MTV, and they would put out the words that they needed videos. Now, everybody was making videos in those days, but they were making like fake live videos. You know, right? They you know were like you know chicks running down you know lingerie models running down alleys and really stupid things like that. We were the first to sit down. I remember we had a meeting about this to do a concept video that actually told the story and, uh, you know, had a concept. So we came up and they kept asking me what I was into, you know, what were my, my, uh, interests. And I, I said, Hey, I love horror movies. And I love, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, stuff like that. So they mm-hmm. said, great. Let's do a parody of a horror movie. Uh, which was actually was really kind of a lot of fun to do. And I used a lot of tricks that a lot of the early filmmakers, this was before giant budgets. So we had to use, we had to improvise. Uh, like for instance, there was a big latex snake, a, a, a snake that was, uh, that comes up through the floor and wraps itself around me. It's like a big uh, rubber snake, you know, mm. big thing. And what we did was we, we we shot it, and then we played it in reverse. So, like, we started out with the, the snakes wrapped around me and then shot it in reverse. So it looked like when he, when he played it in reverse, he threw he came up through the, to the floor, and he wrapped around me, and he gra- dragged me down. It really looked good. And, uh, you know, like, we had the green snake's blood for the serpent, and that was actually a big uh, a big can of Campbell's uh, split pea soup that they had loaded into squirt guns, <laughs> and they were squirting me in the face with the pea soup while I was killing the uh, the snake, and it was it was quite horrible. And by by the way, I've never had uh, Campbell's pea soup again since that day. Can't stomach that. That's, that's, that's excellent because it was such a revolutionary time and I think you know in a way I used to kind of joke that, that you know, there were a few videos yourself Joe Jackson I remember the video for stepping yeah. out when we first got MTV I kind of thought maybe they don't have enough material to fill time because they're playing these same videos over and over again and it probably was the case you know when you listen to kind of it the probably was but boy did you guys you know reap the rewards of that uh, because you know those songs are indelibly marked in our skulls you know, for a generation. Yeah, I know. A lot of people can't visualize the song without visualizing the the video for it. And then it was even better when a half a year later, Weird Al does his his parody 
of uh, of uh, Jeopardy, mm-hmm. and you know, and he made his own video, which was I lost on Jeopardy. Right. So that was great. Like I made a cameo appearance in Al's video. That was really a lot of fun, and I got to meet Don Pardo. That was a kick, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, and I and I I was in him in the in the in the video at the end there where he throws me into the sports car, so you know it was it was kind of cool because the the video uh, was kind of a, uh, a a sequel to the video that we had done, and plus you know Weird Al is a really funny guy he really is you just want to hang with him for a whole afternoon. And I, I had a ball, and th- they were so wonderful to work with. And uh, Weird Al is a great guy, really. And I, I, I was really flattered when he chose my song to do a parody of. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point you bring up, because there were some musicians, I think, even even to this day, who seem almost to be, a, they think they're above, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think sometimes you look a lot cooler when you play along, you know, showing up in the video, that's kind of, you know, to me, that's a, an endorsement from Greg that what Al's doing is is good, and it, it shows class, I think, on your part. So yeah, you know, you know and it, it really was like that. And uh, you know, as I said, we, I reaped the, the rewards because he put that uh, I lost on Jeopardy on a double platinum album, mm-hmm. Weird Al's greatest hits, and to this day, I still get mailbox money from Weird Al. God bless him. Yeah, I, that you can't argue with that. You know, when he's helping pay the no, car, pay, car payments and the mortgages, and oh, it's fantastic. Let me ask you, um, as is a someone of a guitarist, and we talked about Joe, um, your choice of of guitars, the Vox that we kind of see you with on the you know on the new album, Rekindled. Um, what drew you to that particular guitar? Well, you know, I I used to play a Rickenbacker twelve string like uh, Jim McGuinn. It was the uh, I believe it was the three twenty. Okay. And it was a blonde, semi-hollow body, uh, 12-string. You know, those those Rickenbackers were classics. But the problem, and I had two of them, and I really liked them, and I liked the jangly, birdsian sound that they used to mm-hmm. do. But I, I couldn't, my 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 fingers, the, the neck on this, the Rickenbacker is very skinny. And it was really hard for me to get my fingers in the little grooves I couldn't do it I couldn't play it and so uh, one day I I found a Vox and I started playing and I realized that the finger port was much wider than the uh, than the Rickenbacker and it was so much easier to to play the Vox than it was the Rickenbacker you had lots of room Mm -hmm. and also I liked the electronics they sounded pretty cool so I switched over to the uh, to the Vox. I still ho- I have the Rickies. I still have a pair of them, but I hardly ever play them anymore. The problem was they didn't stay in tune a lot, and the skinny fretboard was really a problem for me. Yeah. But you know, as time went by, I I figured out that the Vox was a better instrument for me, and I still got my two two Voxes to this day. Uh, Phantom 12s. Now, um, what brought you back? Um, I mentioned the, the rekindled album. Um, what brought you back into the studio um, at, at this point in your career? I know you've done 
uh, radio work, you, you're a successful author in various other endeavors, but what, what made it feel like 2017 was the time to, you know, kind of put out new material? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've been on the radio for 18 years and then they cut me loose after 18 years and I was kind of at a loss because I didn't know what to do. I've been getting up at 4 a.m. and going to the radio station uh, forever. Uh, but then after a small adjustment period of sleeping late, mm -hmm. I realized that uh, this was a great opportunity to go back into the studio and cut the album that I'd always wanted to do. And as it turned out, our our bass player, Robert Berry, owned a studio in Campbell, California, and my son, Rye, and uh, the, the drummer, Dave Lauser, we would just go down there and hang out. We would go down there two or three days a week and hang out all day and write songs, and it was so much fun. It was so liberating, you know, after all those years. Yeah. Um, I just loved it, and I had a burst of creativity, and uh, we, I wrote all the songs for the new album, uh, you know, either with co collaborating with them or just myself. And, you know, it just it was so much fun to do the album. It, you know, like I remember it was hard in the old days. You know, you come up with a song and you'd, you'd, you'd rework it two or three times. This time, it was, it was a breeze. We would come up with a song idea, and by the end of the day, we'd be finished the song. I mean, it was unbelievable. And songs like our, the first song that we cut for the new album was Big Pink Flamingos, which was a lot of fun. It was a kind of a fun song to perform. But I remember Rye came, uh, my son Rye came in to the studio one day, and he said, check this out. And he started playing the, uh, the, the riff that would be Pink Flamingos. I said, that's great. And out of the clear blue sky, I started singing Big Pink Flamingos. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> it was like floating around in the air, and I grabbed it, and I channeled it or something. But I, and, and, you know, I came up with that, and we wrote it like in 15 minutes. It really, those are the great songs. So, well, you can write them in 15, they write themselves. That's that's the mark of a really good song. Now, other songs that you know I labored over and worked on for weeks didn't even make the cut. So, for me, I learned a, a big lesson that the easy is the best. Yes, the big big pink flamingo lightning in a bottle. That's yeah, yeah. And plus, I'll tell you, you know, writing songs is a it's a craft, and it's you know you get good at it as the years go by. But once I visualized the girl in the flink, pink flamingos, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, the stretch pants on, chewing gum, with the hair and curlers, and, you know, a trailer trash looking girl. Mm -hmm. Once I did that, I, I visualized it. Then I could write the song easily. Yeah. All I did was describe the girl and just came out beautifully. Yeah, and, and the video turned out really fun. I think the amusement park thing made a, you know, very fun uh, video. Yeah, thing. you know, that was, uh, that was at the Santa Cruz boardwalk in santa cruz california where we were playing a concert that night and usually we'd go up a little bit earlier go on a couple of rides and hang out and mm -hmm. meet the fans and stuff like that and that's what we were doing we were just hanging out going on some rides meeting the fans and then uh, and then we played the gig that night uh and and that was a pleasure but you know playing with this this band the greg kin band the, the current 
lineup. It, it, I think they're the best Greg Kinn band we've ever had, even the, if you count the Joe Satriani years. Mm-hmm. I got my son, Rye, on lead guitar, and he was a, he was a jazz guitar major at uh, Berklee School of Music in Boston, and he was a former student of Joe Satriani's, and, and Rye is really good. I mean, he is uh, top of the pops. And then I got uh, Robert Barry on bass. He plays all the instruments in the band, and he's also the producer. And we've got uh, Sammy Hagar's drummer, Dave Lauser, on drums. And I ran into Sammy last summer, and he said, uh, I said, I needed a drummer because my guy could not go on the road. And he said, why don't you take Dave? He's, he's ready to go, and I'm not going to be using him for about a year because... He's got Chicken Foot going on, two or three other projects. At least two. He yeah. said, "You know, I'll call you when it's time to bring him home, but uh, why don't you use him in the interim?" So we did. We brought him into the studio, and man, was he! It was like playing with Keith Moon. You know, he, he was really he, he was a real exciting drummer. A lot of fills, very busy. Uh, I really dug it. Fantastic. Well, Greg, I. I want to again mention you're coming on June 17th. You're going to be doing a show at Jurgles uh, just outside of the city of Pittsburgh. It's going to be great to have you back in western Pennsylvania. Oh, it's great to be back, man. I tell you, I'm really looking forward to playing uh, on June 17th. You know, these are our first road gigs in a long time. Jeez, years. Yeah. So the band is raring to go. They're real tight. They They're well rehearsed. They got new material. Plus, we'll be doing all the hits, obviously. Sure. But uh, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing to be back and going out on the road again. And I can't see, I can't wait to see all my fans back in the Pittsburgh area. Well, it's going to be awesome. I can see, I can hear the you know genuine enthusiasm in your voice, and that's great to hear. You know, you hear a lot of bands going on tour because you have to. Uh, you know, that's how they pay the bills. But it's good to hear somebody. Who's well, yeah, I know that. that. You know, I'll tell you. I've seen lots of bands over my time, but the you know the I can think there are some bands like Tom Petty. They just love being on the road. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem with them. You know what I mean? They're, they're as happy on the road as they are at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, some bands hate it. They totally hate it, and they don't want to go on the road. And that's unfortunate because you really need to promote your album. And, you know, like I said, as far as I'm concerned, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it certainly should. Again, June 17th. And, Greg, I want to thank you so much for your time, man. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to remind the fans that if they need any information or anything about Greg Kinn, go to gregkinn.com. You can buy the uh, CDs there. You can... Uh, you can buy anything. I got the <laughs> books there ready for go. And, uh, they're also the best thing about that is there's a tour date. So there's a section of tour dates and we're adding, uh, more dates every day. In fact, I think we just added two yesterday. So, uh, you know, you can always check there to see where we're going to be going and where we're going to be going, uh, next. Awesome. Again, thank you so much, Greg. Have a good one. All right, a big thanks once again to Greg Kinn for joining us. He will be at Jurgles in Warrendale again on June 17th. The new album, Rekindled, is available now. The single, Big Pink Flamingo, is available. You want to check that out on YouTube. It's a fun video, as uh, we discuss in the interview there. Uh, Greg always does great videos, so 
keep the tradition alive all these years later. So check that out. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. Contact us at ironcity at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We're on all the social media sites with forward slash ironcityrocks. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us today. <laughs>